Thought in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello everyone, hello out there in internet podcast land and for those uh, people that show their support and, and listen to these episodes and give me some feedback and all that sort of stuff, thank you very much for something that's still a budding project. And tonight is a bit of a milestone for this particular podcasting project because I'm actually doing a panel that's more than two people. So I, I don't know what to do with that. Um, uh, th- things might just go out of control. I'll try to see how I go with the facilitation. But um, again, one of those things where I'm just starting off and, and seeing where it goes. But anyway, I shall do some introductions. First guy uh, everyone I'm hoping knows by now, it's his old mate John. How are you doing, John? I'm doing well. Thanks, Michael. Very good. And uh, my third uh, individual tonight is a a newbie to Thorn in Your Side, but I've brought him in um, because we we pretty much have a bit to talk about in terms of the post-Delta wave COVID times. Um, I'm not going to say post-COVID times because, uh, yeah, reasons. But uh, we, yeah, I think this is going to be the, the tenor of the episode where we talk about our lockdown experiences and hence why I've brought this third dude in. And uh, it's Federico Fuentes. Hello, Fred. How's it going? Uh, hello and uh, going pretty well, thanks. So um, for, for all the listeners out there, Fred, my uh, understanding of you is that, uh, well, I guess the, the thing that has all three of us in common is that we're all, um, I was about to say University of Western Sydney, but it's WSU now, isn't it? Uh, or Wanderers University <laughs> um, alumnus. Uh, so we were, we all three of us haunted uh, Bankstown campus back in the day, um, and which these days that campus is on limited time, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how much more time it has left. But anyway, that's how we all found out each other. But meanwhile, Fred is also a, a political activist, crosses over a number of lefty issues, and also, uh, as I am busting to say, uh, a very passionate fellow Wanderers fan. And I was very tempted to basically bother the shit out of John because at the moment, like, I've got Fred on my far left, um, like, physically far left as well as... I was going to say, how come he's... (laughs) Well, everyone's on the left of you at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you're the one that set up the room. Like you, you decided where we were all sitting. Yeah, is that Freudian? Let the people decide. No, um. So yeah, basically, where I was going from with this is basically, um, John's John's in the middle between the Joker and a thief, and um, because Fred and I are two Wanderers fans, I was very tempted to go. Who do you sing for? We sing for Wanderers, and do that for about an hour or so, and John will just go off. Oh, Fuck this, and they just basically storm out after, say, 20 minutes of that, I reckon. 
that's a bold claim. Very generous. <laughs> very generous. I think. I think. I think. Three minutes. Three, <sighs> three minutes wouldn't take much. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we won't do that. We we might. Um, we might get down to biz. Um, so while we're all here today, and um, we're here mainly, so um, I can have some closure. But uh, we'll try and dress this up as um, some legit political discussion. So. There was the lockdown last year, and it's actually, would we call it a year's anniversary since it started? I think it's feeling like it. started in late June, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah. I was doing my annual trip up north. Um, It's not really my annual thing this year. I just can't trust things right now. But, um, yeah, I was coming back, and then as I was coming back, I was being told that, yeah, Sydney was going like I was going to travel into basically a locked up Sydney. So uh, I was just feeling a bit scared because it was really that sentiment of, uh, I, I think they'll allow me to cross the border back into New South Wales. But also once I'm in there, it's like, am I allowed to go back out? Or is it just basically going into Mordor and just not being allowed to escape? You know, it just felt like that. And just my mates up there, it's like I was just saying, can I stay? <laughs> <laughs> But um, they wouldn't let me, unfortunately. But yeah, and then, but the thing that was kind of giving me some sort of uh, respite was the fact that the rhetoric at that time seemed to be that it was going to be just like two weeks, you know, and then two weeks became two months, um, and then two months became close to half a year. So for a two-week lockdown, it was a pretty good half-a-year effort. Um, So, and that was a scary thing. For me, is that you never knew when it was going to end. It raised a lot of serious political questions for me. It was a new experience for me, but at the same time, it still raised familiar political concerns, grievances. I was a frustrated piece of shit by the end of it, that was for sure. And I know that, um, that Fred, you, you definitely had some views during the lockdown and I, I definitely was across a lot of them through social media because when you're in lockdown, there wasn't much to do other than be online <laughs> and definitely checked out your, uh, your Facebook page uh, every so often to see what you had to say and you had to say a lot of things and um, people agreed with you, people disagreed with you, people on the right agreed with you, people on the left agreed with you people on the left disagree with you people on the right disagree with you it was just fun times um and by fun i mean really really fucked up so <laughs> <laughs> maybe fred if that gives you a bit of a lead in to have a bit of a chance to reflect and maybe have have some thoughts on on what your experiences were during lockdown and um yeah john feel free to cut in when you when you wanna yeah i think um what provoked me to sort of really think and 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 i would actually say rethink a lot of things um, during that period. It was just the fact that my, my lived experience was so different to the way people were describing lockdown. Uh, and I'm one of the lucky ones. I, I wasn't in one of the uh, so-called uh, LGAs of concern, um, so I didn't bear the full brunt of the lockdown. Um, but I worked through the entire lockdown, including having to travel into uh, LGAs of, of concern. So I got to see firsthand and talk to people, which is saying that not many people got to do during lockdown. I mean, maybe for Zoom, but then you had to know those people to make that contact. You don't just go into a random room on Zoom and 
start talking to strangers. Well, you were telling me that just before we were recording that um, you, the type of work that you do, I, I guess you could classify as essential work? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's in the fire services industry, fire protection industry. So, And most of that industry works straight through. Of course, the, the construction shutdown, which occurred for about two weeks, uh, impacted. Uh, but even that didn't particularly impact on the work that I do because a lot of it uh, involves having to go to site, um, but it's usually already established sort of fire protection. So it meant that I not only got to travel into Western City, but I also got to see what was happening in regional New South Wales because as part of my work, I went to, to Wagga, I went to Nowra, um, and, you know, getting their experience of what it, you know, what it was like being in a town where you still had a, still had a, a semi-lockdown, essentially, but you'd never had a case or had very few cases. Um, and so seeing how they were reacting to it. And, and, um, and various levels of lockdown literacy, I suppose, wouldn't it? Well, absolutely. And, you know, and that's the thing. You came across all these kind of discussions. And what the first thing you found was that, you know, contrary to this idea that, you know, society was polarised between people who just wanted everything shut down and wanted to eradicate the virus and then the other percentage of society who just wanted to let it rip and wanted everyone to die... 99% of the people I spoke to said, oh, look, this is pretty serious. You know, I understand what's going on, but I understand that as part of just one part of my life, you know, like I also see as important my livelihood and being able to go to work and pay the bills. You know, that's also equally important to me. Or for some cases it was more important, in other cases it was less important. But what I found was that, you know, in general, most people had a similar idea of what they thought was important. So... Whilst on social media, people were saying, oh, we should shut down everything. My experiences was when you spoke to people, like in some of the logistics factories that I um, you know, had to go and visit and whatever, it was, wasn't like, they just wanted to be safe. They wanted to feel safe at work. You know, that's, that was what they were really interested in. And they knew that if their place got shut down, like, chances were they may not come back to a job. Mm. Um, and that was a real concern for them. Uh, mm. Of course, it's not a concern for someone who sits in an office and worked from home and probably continues to work from home today and because of the benefits that that brings for them. But that doesn't, and that doesn't mean that their lived experience is wrong either. What I, what I, what I came to learn was that this idea that there's either a one-size-fits-all or this idea that you just had two polar opposites and nothing, nothing else just was not the reality that I was experiencing. Um, it was much more complex. But at the same time, a lot of commonalities that came through, even from people with very different political backgrounds, a bit like what you said. Oh, some people on the right agreed with me, some people on the left agreed with me, some people didn't from both sides. Um, that was my experience as well. Mm. Um, from the anarchist viewpoint, it was definitely quite interesting where um, the black and the yellow and black sort of things became quite confused that sort of felt like a bit of a task on my end on the social medias where you would encounter suddenly this debate between libertarians who were presenting as anarchists and anarchists in the pure sense. But the thing that was really bugging me, whereas back in the day you would basically just tell a libertarian type to fuck off, during lockdown they had a sense of legitimacy and it does remind me about what we were talking about last episode, John, um, where we learned a new thing about something called the Overton window. Previously on... Do it in your side. The Overton window is the range of policies politically acceptable to the mainstream population at a given time. It is also known as the window of discourse. I think that's where the legitimacy came from because suddenly 
Um, and I think this was a lot to do with a, a lot of right wing types really being able to cut into the mainstream where they were able to talk about and make normal the idea that you didn't necessarily need to vaccinate. There was real rights of the individual above all. Public interest, eh. There was still individual ed- enterprise to worry about. But, yeah, it just it became, it, it, it all made the politics very confused. And I think mixing that up with the fact that we're living in pretty unusual times, um, I think... A lot of people were still busy trying to map it out, let alone trying to find themselves being in these unique conversations. I think that I think it's it's partly because I mean politics today is in some ways confused. Like it's it's not a coincidence that you found people on the left and right with all sorts of different ideas. I mean, in, in, you know, I don't want to sort of draw a direct link between you know how you your work experience therefore dictates your politics. It doesn't quite work like that, but. But for instance, you know, someone who maybe works in construction, you know, you think, oh, the construction, they must be like CFMU, trade union militant. They must be a radical left wing. They're, of course, going to agree with traditional left wing ideas. I mean, what's a traditional left wing idea in a pandemic? No one knows because, you know, the last time it happened was almost 100 years ago and there's very little written about what what the left did did at that time. But then a lot of the people in construction are also contractors, you know, who, you know, they're... You know, are, are they a small business or are they a worker or are they a mixture of both? And, of course, they've probably got a mixture of both of those ideas floating in their heads. Um, and, and so when they start to think about politics, they think about, well, what are the things that impact me in my daily life? What is this going to mean for me? And what the right was able to do and what the left, I found, in large part was unable to do was to, to, to offer something different. I mean, the, the left largely largely played the role of a cheer squad for what the governments were doing, but just saying, look, we would do it a bit better. And th- that was it. That's all really it came down to. Like, so all they would do is sort of say, well, we would have, like, you know, paid them more money to stay home or we would have lifted the unemployment benefit by more. Or building purpose-built quarantine facilities and, well, and, and franchise them out. That's right, yeah. We, we would have built, you know, which is, yeah, which is... It, the fact that no one even mentions them today just shows how sort of laughable all, all of that was. But but what the right did, or at least a section of the right did, was sort of tap into that and at least offer a few a few key talking points that that people could relate to and they could start to think about. They said the vaccine mandate, which actually is is not an in, you know being opposed to vaccine mandate is not an inherently right wing position. In fact, it's it's generally been a position a lot on the left have held. You know that you, you, you the, the idea of informed consent, the idea of um, you should choose what happens to to your body, uh, the idea that your boss should never have a say on your health. These are all basic ideas that you know a lot of a lot of CFMU militants have fought for for a long time, and it's, that's why it's not surprising that in Victoria that became one of the flashpoint unions where where these sort of debates happen because they said, well, hang on, you. We've always fought against the bosses being able to tell us what to do, you know. Now we're going to tell them, now they can tell us to inject saying into our arm. And, of course, you had people in there then stirring the pot. Yeah, ah, yeah, you know, they, they, you know what they, you know, they're really injecting you with and all that. But most of the people, you know, they weren't, most of the people who were sceptical of the vaccine didn't think it was sort of like this, this sort of secret plot uh, to, to what brainwash me through this injection. They were just like, well, hang on, this is, this is all a bit much, you know. And like, this is all a bit... A lot, lot is happening here, and I'm not convinced of this, and I'm not being convinced by a government who's saying, well, you've got to do it or you're going to lose a job. 
And I'm not being convinced by a left that's sort of saying, well, yeah, we just agree with the government, except we would somehow do this differently. So that, w- that was my experience, that there was no... Um, and then that was played out on the streets because during the pandemic, by far the only protests that really happened were, you know, the what you broadly define as the freedom movement, if you want to put them in air quotes or not, what, whatever. Mm. Which, you know, of course... A lot of people on the left just simply just dismissed as, well, this is all a, a far-right plot. Um, and they would point out that X far-right figure was at the rally or, or it's spoken. But, I mean, you know, I was thinking about it actually today, you know, in preparation for this. I mean, you could say the same thing about almost every protest that the left's been involved in. Almost every protest the left's involved in, there's at least one far-right leftist activist, in, a lot of times more than that, who is speaking on the platform or part of organising that doesn't mean the large, large bulk of those people that turn up to the rally are far leftists. I mean, the climate strike, there's clearly far left activists involved in that as well as moderate left and people who are just interested in the climate. It didn't mean everyone who turned up to the climate strike ideologically agreed to them. This was my experience with the people who I know went to the freedom movement. Far from being far right people, many who had left ideas... But they were, the, they were the only ones that mobilised during the pandemic. I mean, the, I, I don't recall, a, you know, apart from a couple of um, car cavalcades early on in the first lockdown in 2020, there was no no mobilisation of the left, which I know is difficult in a pandemic. And so I don't necessarily require that to be people necessarily in the street, but there just wasn't wasn't anything except for social media. So that, and that's where everyone then just vented on there instead. Well, it, it did seem to be quite uninspired in the sense that it was a fight to try and work out one's position. Any political expression seemed to be a bridge too far. Do you think that might have been the case, John, where there was that shit fight that was happening, that um, there was a lot of confusion, still trying to make sense of things, um, lefty types trying to put a lot more investment in their own position and trying to keep things as black and white as possible. What do you reckon? I think that there's a lot there, but I certainly think freedom is a very powerful concept, right? And most of us live our lives without really thinking about how our freedom is compromised, you know, in, in the day-to-day. And the pandemic and the lockdown really forced people to, to confront it and deal with the fact that actually the state is stepping in and what you thought was your freedom to live your life the way you wanted, which, you know, we know is is got serious restrictions, was really clamped down. And in our culture, you know, the concept of freedom is so powerful and the right were able to to utilise it in such a powerful way during the, the pandemic. And, you know, it was a pretty clear argument, like... Freedom is important. They're taking away your freedom. Like it's, it was pretty simple messages. Um, and certainly it was also lived experience. I think everyone lived with some level and probably quite substantial level of your, of your freedoms being restricted by this. Mm. So certainly I think, you know, the right had an open slather, like, you know, the left was, and I think you're right, right? The left was, what are we going to do? Like we just ended up having conversations, you know, from lounge rooms and stuff. Like it's one of the tragedies of it like here here it is and and we probably need to talk about these where these lockdown lgas are you know in the west of sydney you know if we say you know geographically predominantly working class even though that's you know it's not a simple category anymore but the yeah the left did nothing about it and instead you know the right comes in and and focuses on the concept of freedom and and really 
really managed, I think, to motivate quite quite a lot of people during those protests and or to have sympathy for it as well. There's a lot of people that didn't go to those protests that were like, well, no, I agree. This is a bridge too far. We've, we've went too far. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're like, I know people who didn't go because they also took COVID serious. Yeah. And so they were like, well, we, we are in a lockdown. And so going to a rally of 10,000 people is not going to help us get out of this lockdown. But they also understood that there were some serious discussions that needed to be had about what was happening that literally going to see your grandmother became illegal. Um, you know, this this is the micromanagement that it, the state had got to. And the only people questioning it were, were the right. Uh, because even when the left questioned it, it was always like questioned it, but only to a point. And then it would just become... But at the end of the day, we've got to, like, defeat the virus. Like, there was always a but. Like, it was never, like, no, I agree with you, full stop. It was like, I agree with you, but you've got to remember. Um, and I think then going to your question about, well, where, where did this come from? I, I think there's, a like, a couple of different things. And, again, it comes back to that lived experience. So, sorry, Fred, you're, you're referring to me? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that this is not a, a, a visual... <laughs> I, I can see, but um, we'll have to do the YouTube version next time so that um, they can see the, 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 the... Well, it wouldn't be the listeners then, would it? It would be the, uh, the yeah, watchers. It's the next evolutionary <laughs> step for this podcasting project. Um, yeah, watch this space, folks. Yep, but, but where did it come from? I mean, look, let's, let's be honest. Like, what's one important section of the, the, the base of what today constitutes left is, uh, you know, public sector workers, people in universities. So people who... It didn't really affect them or it affected them in a minimal sense or or, or, or in some senses in a positive sense. Like, you know, there, there were people who literally made money out of, and I don't mean that in the sense of like they profited from it, like they didn't have to pay to travel and they stayed home and made their lunches at home and they actually saved money during the pandemic. Like the, the statistics show that. So there's not, say I'm making up. So in that, in that case, it's obviously easy to just go with the flow and support the government policy. Okay. I mean, there was others that were, living this sort of fantasy that somehow they're in this, you know, as I was saying before, this titanic battle that was pitting, you know, the, the, the radicals that were calling to shut down capitalism versus the people who just wanted to let it rip and let everyone die and then, you know, viewed the world in this sort of fantasy that just wasn't, wasn't a reality. And, you know, so they tried to pretend that, like, Morrison was just like Trump when the reality is, like, all around the world, like, Morrison was just seen as, like, you know, it's Morrison... Jacinta and China, you know, like they're, they're like the lockdown extremists. But he, like, you had to pretend that somehow, uh, you know. And then you had this crazy sort of conspiracy that it was the states that had really forced Morrison, and he really wanted to just let her. But but no one in real life society saw it like that, you know. Like everyone just saw, yeah, pretty much all the governments are on the same page, and I agree or disagree or whatever. But those that were concerned or had issues or were thinking about stuff. You know, the only people reaching out there was, was, was elements of the right. There was very little being offered in, in concrete terms. I, I, I think really for the left, a lot of the argument was defeat the virus today, the bourgeoisie can wait for tomorrow. Well, well, y yes, but I, there was also others that said they, it was the one and the same fight. So there was like, you know, if we lock down and we shut down all the shops... Then, then somehow the capitalists are the <laughs> one paying for us to defeat the virus. Uh, then, of course, you look at the fact that like we now have a record share of national income going to the capitalist class, and we, that's in a context of where literally just before the pandemic, you could see the stock market was about to tank. 
So you just had two years of just the state using the pandemic. And I don't mean that in a sort of pandemic yeah. sort of uh, sort of way, but the state operates in a way to maintain the functioning of capitalism. And that's what it did during this pandemic. But people lived out this fantasy that somehow, like, if I shut down a Gucci store, then, you know, capitalism is being brought to its knees by the state. And it's like, no, 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 the state's just going to subsidise that and they're going to make money. And we've seen it with JobKeeper. That's precisely what happened during this period. What also happened during this period was that workers' income, real income, went backwards. And so you're left with this idea that for two years we were told that locking down was the, the, the anti-capitalist sort of, and this was the way that we would make the bosses pay for the, for the pandemic. And yet it turns out that the only people that paid were workers. Like whether they paid for it by losing jobs, whether they paid for it by losing family members, because the essential workers didn't lose their job, but they still had to go to work. I think the um, I think the the union campaign towards the end there was basically get rid of Morrison um, because I can just think of the placards of the Hawaiian shirts and um, I don't hold the hose. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the main thrust of it come election time. Um, but uh, the thing that that really comes to mind for me because I'm starting to fortunately be able to think about this on, on more sober terms is there's still this like this dichotomy of things when it comes to to politics you know left and right the idea of freedom whose domain does that exist within is that a left thing or is it a right thing i think this is where we can come in a bit more of the shades of gray and and maybe one place where we can kind of do that a bit is the idea of freedom um now i think we saw that um that the right during the lockdown, took the window of opportunity or the Overton window of opportunity on this when they said that when we mean freedom, we talk about individual rights. And we feel that um, that this pandemic, whether or whether or not it is actually um, a reality or not, um, or it's some sort of deep, deep state lizard construction, um, it, it's impacting upon a person's ability to do day-to-day stuff. And then all of a sudden, they took a mortgage on the argument of freedom. Whereas I would argue, and I think this is where we've kind of gone through in the thrust of this episode, is how do you manage the freedom of labor? Because I think, and this is where I got particularly angry with capital T, capital L, the left, is that there was this assumption that uh, working class types, they had the space and the agency to go, okay, well, there is a lockdown, um, therefore we are publicly mandated to stop work. That's not necessarily the case when you need to basically have a way to survive, you know. Um, if COVID's not going to kill you, then um, then not having a wage might do so as well. So to me, that became a, a bit more of a critical analysis on the management of the state of this lockdown. And I think for me, I live in Campbelltown and I, I basically experienced the thrust of it and it did feel very zero sum on both sides of the spectrum where people needed to work. They flouted lockdown rules not because, well, I mean, for some it was about buying into the, the, the libertarian rhetoric and whatever Clive Palmer would say, but um, I think the fair whack of them, it was about, well, we, we still got to live. We still got to have a wage to live. And to that extent, I don't think capitalism was paused. And that is the symbiotic thing that still happens. And I think it's a st- the thing that still pervades with capitalism, that both classes still need to subsist from it. 
um, well, I suppose the, the rich ones exploit it, but I mean the, the, the poorer ones would subsist on it. That's not going to stop during the lockdown. And I, I don't think the left really understood that and it was a bit more of a blanket rule. And I think that really got boiled down to this idea of how to have the best platform, which may or may not have been a reflection on how people are actually experiencing stuff in reality. It's taken me a lot to actually say that in a very calm manner because a year and a half ago, I'd be swearing too much and I'd be throwing shit around. What do you reckon with those ones, folks? Uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, you could say, oh, it should be a bit more of a nuanced approach, but, um, but I, I do buy into the fact that still very much black and white, old school, left, right, dichotometric. Do you want us dichotometric a word? Sure. Stuff that's still going on. So what do you reckon, guys? Uh, one thing that came to my mind when you, I think at one point you said something like, um, you know, that capitalism didn't come to a, to a stop. To me, like at least in my life and, and for many of the people that I came into contact with, it was like capitalism was like stripped down to just purely what it needed to survive, which was you go to work, you go home, and then you shop online because that's all you can do. Friends, family, sports, forget about that. All you do is the bare minimum to keep capital alive. And people saw that and felt that. And people, you know, as you said, like, it, you know, it wasn't just about needing to work to, to, to survive. You know, for people, people, a lot of people like work. Like, a lot, we can, fine, we can have a podcast about, you know, the work under capitalism or whatever. But for some people, some of their work is their fulfilling part of their, their, their week. For some of them, it's escape from not a very nice life at home. So there's all sorts of different reasons why people may, may want to do that. But they also wanted to be safe at work. So it was very easy to talk to them. Of course, you know, people, you know, the response then is like, oh, well, just give everyone like a, what are they, the, the N95 mask. And it's like, well, yeah, that's also not going to really work because you try wearing one of those in like 35 degree heat in a factory. Like you, it's not going to happen. But, but workers know how their factory should work. Like they come up instinctively with ideas about, rostering lunch times at different times so they could go be in, be in the sheds at different times like all these things could have easily come up and that's where you know I think where we could have intersected in that discussion about freedom because the discussion seemed to be polarized between the right-wing version of freedom which was just individual survival of the fittest anyone who gets in my way is impinging on my right but the opposite then was kind of like this sort of uh, imposed freedom that the only freedom you could have actually was if the state got everyone to be locked down equal and that was that was the, that was, to me that was the craziest thing like the state must lock down and and equally you know but somehow the border became sydney or, or state borders you know like oh, we should lock down new south wales why you shouldn't then also lock down wa I, I don't know we decided that colonially described lines on the map were where lockdowns should occur by um, and we said they should just as long the freedom would be if they were applied equally as if we haven't learned that the police force operate in a very different way in Mount Druitt than what they do in Wallara. Like, this is never going to be equal. 
It's never going to be equal because the police are never going to be equal. The, the housing in these areas is not equal. We live in a highly unequal society. It was a bit more helicoptery and megaphony over in the West, I noticed, with the lockdown management of the state and police. And it was a lot quieter on the beaches for the residents of Bondi without having people from the Western Sydney going to spend their weekends there as well. You know, that that's the reality of what uh, equal lockdown means. You know, mm. like... I remember, like, growing up in Bosley Park, you know, like, I know I tried to think, oh, imagine if I had to have done where I grew up my five-kilometre radius. I mean, most of the parks there were either, like, sports fields that were just largely mud or it was just, like, dust, you know? Like, there just wasn't that many green areas. Very different to, like, depending if you live in on the eastern suburbs or even in the inner west um, or in the Blue Mountains. These things didn't factor in because... The, the left or the, the, the majority left vision of freedom was, well, we freedom from dying from COVID. You know, that's the most important freedom. Ironically, while the right wing was raising slogans like our body, our choice, the left will say, no, the most, the most sacred thing is life. And I was like, well, hang on, I think I've heard these things before, <laughs> but uh, I feel like it's the other people that were arguing those sort of positions. But where we could have intersected is that actually the, the freedom that we that we strive for and we want is for is won by collectively organising. Then that doesn't mean collectively imposing everything on everyone equally, because we know that everyone has different experiences and different needs. But we can only come up and understand those if we collectively discuss these. All of these things are like, oh yeah, that's a nice idea, but we have to crush the virus today. And it's like, okay, that's fine, but we're now two and a half years in. And like I said, we still haven't won basic things. And in fact, we've gone probably gone backwards in a lot of things. We've certainly gone backwards in terms of wages, in terms of you know people's work conditions, the amount of insecure work now that exists has you know uh, gone up because of you know so all, on all the metrics we've gone backwards. And there's nothing that we can sort of point to. And any and anything that did exist was explicitly done in a temporary manner. So you know the increase to to new start, uh, you know job keeper, all, all these kind of things, job keeper with all its problems, but whatever. All of the pandemic leave, all of these things were inbuilt to be temporary so that we would come out of this in a worse situation. And the only thing that the large segments of the left could say was like, well, they're good ideas, but we've got to, you know, we've got to deal with the freedom of life, you know, of, of ensuring that we, we don't all die, even though, we, even though we knew and everyone else knew that it wasn't the case that everyone was equally at risk of dying. That's, that was also the problem is that you couldn't even have this discussion yeah, you, know, you couldn't even just raise an idea of like, well, look, the reality is that people die every day as well. That's that. That is also really, and we can't ban people from going out forever to so that no one dies from skin cancer. I mean, if anyone said that, it'd, it'd be called a crazy. You know, or no one should be allowed to drive anymore, and that way, no one would die from a car accident. Everything in society is a constant collective discussion of what level of risk are we willing to accept. But raising this in the context of COVID became impossible. Because, you know, because one side would jump in and say, you just want everyone to die. And then, of course, the other side would jump in to fish and say, oh, you know, oh, see, these people are just crazy communists. You know, they want to state imposed everything on for freedom. And that's and that's what the right did. And, of course, in that context, I know which one kind of like vaguely sounds more interesting to me. And that's what the right did in a, in a lot of the, in, in a lot of this this period. We will see the lasting impacts, though, of really of, of what this means for politics in, in Australia, because Freedom movement, on one hand, is dwindled. We don't really see any relics of it. it, it it's still there, but it's far from what it was before. 
the Palmer United Party and those sort of parties didn't do as well as expected, although I think it's also underplayed how well they did do in some areas of Western Sydney. Like in some seats, if you combine the vote of what you could call the radical right, you know, sort of the right of the right, you know, getting to 15 18%. That's, you know, if that was one candidate that got that, it'd be like, going, oh, that's an interesting vote, you know. Um, but because it was fragmented, it's sort of easy to just say, ah, oh, you know, they all failed, they all fizzled. That's what John and I were talking about in the last episode when we were talking about the wash-up of the vote, where um, it very much seemed like the, the suburban middle class was a bellwether. Now, when you had a look at what was left over, which on an electoral basis could demonstrate what were the remnants of the working class vote. I would agree with you, Fred, that there was a certain amount of fragmentation that, that goes across the spectrum. And I think that represents a lot of things that happened during the pandemic where, and this seems to be my sentiment, that I think the pandemic has been pretty much like a speed run of neoliberalism over the last 40 years in terms of the abandonment of class analysis. So, and I'm trying to have a bit of a think on the run here in terms of where I'm going to go with this because when, because my interest here is is during the pandemic was, was the left going to get their shit together? Organise come up with an alternative and people stay healthy, still have the agency to work, work in their own interests, do all of that. But no, it exposed and I think it even amplified a lot of the frustrations and the symptoms that we've seen that have been wrought upon it through neoliberalism. There was no coalescence towards class-based demands and uh, I, and that's where I take where you're coming from, I would say, Fred, and correct me if I'm wrong, where you could still do that within the context of freedom but within a class context and you try and find what the demands are. Class demands. You could have a big discussion on what that's about but that didn't seem to happen. It seemed to be a bit of a war and this definitely was carried out on your Facebook page, Fred, during the lockdown, um, as I saw it, where it was just basically just this big shit fight on who had the best platform. And there was tribalism there, and it just it became a competition of institutions, of organisations, of movements, of labour rights, of rusted-on union types. It was never about looking at where the common class demands were. It was more about who had the best platform and how to, I don't know, like create the best platform soup. Like I'm, I'm talking about it in very, um, very vague ways, but it just that, but that's the way it seemed to go down. Like everyone was too busy trying to make sense of it, but at the same time, just kind of falling back to old strategies where just stick with the platform because we, we don't have an evidence base for what class is. But I'm looking at that and I'm, that's where my sense of frustration and anger came from because I was actually fucking experiencing it during the lockdown. Like the, it was pain, it was punishment. Your ability to feel free to be able to do your everyday stuff was constantly getting restricted like you talk about the lack of green areas fred like the saving grace for me at one point was being able to just kind of walk out in the streets and just kind of get some fresh air it got to the point you could only do that one hour a day and you could only do that during daylight like it just it gradually became this attrition of restrictions and 
I don't know how much of that was in health interest and how much of that was actually just ways of just trying to regulate Westy suburban movement because it's the unwashed. What better way to get away with um, with managing that is through more punitive means and no one in the North Shore is going to complain about that, you know, and that's where it became politicised and this was something that the left wasn't still angry about it, still went fucking seeing, you know. <laughs> it still gives me a sense of disillusionment well, it, it, but it, it was part of, see, and this is coming from a conservative government here in New South Wales, but, but Labor governments did the same thing. It was, it was about sending the message, the message, the message. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. The message, though, as well, that we could have defeated the virus. It's just that these people in Western Sydney, for some reason, just wouldn't follow the rules. That's why they had to be consistently made tighter and stricter and more police had to be sent there. Yeah, they just kept but, acting up. Yeah, but the reality wasn't this you know, this is you know, the contrast couldn't have been clearer in the press conferences that they kept giving, which was like at well that time Berejiklian would say, you know, look, we've just gotta follow the rules. If we all follow the rules, we'll get out of this. And then Gary Chant, the the chief health officer the medical officer, would you know, she'd say, well the reality is that everyone is following the rules, but the problem is is that people still have to go to work, and in those work areas, that's where they're spreading the virus, and then they go home and they pass it on to everyone at home. And it's like, and then the police minister would come in, and then the police, and we're going to have more police going out into Western City, but you, you can't police police your way out of a pandemic, firstly, but also you, you can't police people going to work. That's going to happen. So where are the answers to that? And I think going to those broader points that you were raising, I think there's an important part of what we saw. Rather than having learned anything from the pandemic, I feel like there's been a doubling down on it. So you even see it like in the discussions that continue now, where it to me it blows my mind that we're still having more of a discussion about whether masks mandates should be brought back in. And again, we could have a whole discussion about masks. And yet so little is talked about, well, what about rolling out the fourth round of, of booster shots, you know, and, and things like the actual thing that we know definitely works and helps to save lives. This just gets fallen out. But I think it's partly because it's this sense of, on the one hand, there was so much common agreement between both sides of the political class that they had to create these fictional debates over these other issues that really made no difference. Because you look at all of the big debates, they weren't really the ones that were going to tackle this problem anyway. There was never a big debate about what to do about workplace safety. It just didn't exist. There was never a real discussion about sick leave. It just didn't exist because there was no interest from the core of the political class to do that. And then it's the hangers-on on social media were just happy to go along and be cheer squads and, and play out this, you know, like, like I said, this titanic battle that was just a fantasy in their heads. Um, but the other dynamic in all this then is that the growing disconnect between the rest of society and this political class. So then you'd go to places and they're just like, all of them are just rubbish. Like they're just talking rubbish, like all... Oh, we know what we need to do. We know how we can safely do this stuff. Provide us with some information. Provide us, provide us. I mean, to me, it's crazy that like it was only in, in December that all of a sudden people in Australia realised that rapid antigen tests existed. I mean, most of the world had been using them since about April, May 2020. And these were easy things that we could have been doing, rolling out here in workplaces. But then, of course, even that then became... There was the community science projects that as soon as COVID started, they were coming out of the tree saying, look, we, we were actually coming up with our homemade testing kits. Yeah, yeah. But please, like, 
government have a look at it, painted it, but they it, they just weren't getting a look in. So the, the, the knowledge was already there within the community, but just it wasn't, it, it just didn't marry up with, like you're saying, yeah. it wasn't within that fourth estate. Yeah, and then and then there was like, the, there was the there was a company in Brisbane or in Queensland that was producing them, but, you know, because there was no interest. In fact, they were illegal here. Yeah. Um, again, crazy, but they were illegal, so they were exported to the US. But then again, that then became another big Titanic battle. So all of a sudden it had to be like, oh, it went from no one knew they existed to like, why didn't we just have endless stocks of this so that everyone could get tested every day? And it's like, well... Neither of those two things are really going to be u- that useful and help. Like we could have had this for years, well, for a year and a half, and we could have been working to actually like do- use these properly, learning from the experiences of other countries. But there was no interest. And then once the stock turned up, you know, of course, it was no longer politically useful to attack Morrison on this or for, you know, now Morrison could sell himself as like, oh, I've got the stock. It just became a dead issue. And, and you know, now it's just goes along. Even though everyone said at the time, which is a key battle because this was this is the, the beginning of the privatization of healthcare. Because now you have to pay for this test. Everyone still goes around and pays for them and stuff like that. And it's just, no one cares about it. So we just move on. Like we were, bit, we were talking before we started recording about how we just move on to the next issue and we learn nothing from what has just happened before. I wanted to go back to uh, what you were talking about with the, the premier and the health minister and and this this clash of messages. There's a really interesting thing that happened in middle of July. I think the weekend of July the seventeenth, twenty twenty one, last year. Um, the premier gets up and says, "Right, we're locking down these LGAs." And she said at the time, "We're locking down these LGAs. You, if you're in a lockdown LGA, you can't leave it unless you're a healthcare worker. That's it." Right, and this was like on on Saturday, and you can see like that that that. All right, this is it. We've got to stop workers moving around, and then within a day, it's like, oh yeah, we fucked up. So basically, all these other workers could now leave their LGAs, and and when they said, well, what have you done? The health advice was that people shouldn't leave their LGAs. You've now compromised it, and she literally came out and said, well. Big business told us that they need those workers, so it was clear, right, that you know. With these workers, we need them. They need to go out there. They need to work outside their LGAs. So it was done. So it was interesting to see that that clash, right? That that the health and capitalism clash, and capitalism wins, right? It took took it took a weekend, but they won. So that that element, I think, too, the things you guys are talking about in regards to Western Sydney, like these inequalities were always there. In Australia, we like to pretend they don't exist. That we're all equal. That you know, it's it's that tall poppy thing. We're all all together. These inequalities weren't there. They clearly were there. This exposed them. You know, we were shocked for a moment and then it went away again. We're just pretending that, you know, the lives of people in Western Sydney and the lives of the people in Eastern suburbs and the North Shore are, are, are the same. When clearly this showed that they're, they're different. They're very, very fundamental different. And it, this goes back to the class thing, right? And you mentioned this as well. Yeah. There were people who you worked from home. Like, I'll be honest, like, I worked from home. It was, there was, uh, Weeks, months where I'm not leaving the house. My wife is an essential worker. She's a childcare worker. She had to go. There was no choice. She had to go to a job and 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 do that. You know, there was just in our house. There's these two different experiences. That so again cut across the, you know these concepts of class and sort of understood where where you are in in, in that element as well. I, I I find that sort of stuff like this moment when it, it's like the scales have been lifted. Everyone can see. Okay, this is how the system works. And then very quickly, let's get back to where we were. 
And people were saying, like you were saying this again, on the, the utopian, oh, this is going to change everything. Oh, this is going to change the world. Oh, no, it's not. The economic system didn't change. Yeah, no, no. Like one of the things I wish that we, at least we got out of it, and I don't think it's it's necessarily gone, but is like for the first time, even if it was only symbolically, we started to talk about things like essential workers, you know, and and we seem to be almost forgetting about that kind of stuff, but the role that these people played, and in particular the role that suburbs in Western Sydney play, because even like even after the lockdown. What you were talking about, how first it was only healthcare workers and then it was other workers, but they had to get tested every three days. Yeah. This played a big disruptive role in the construction industry. Why? Well, firstly, a lot of the workers were from that area, but not necessarily all of them. But what they found was that a lot of, a lot of the, the, the foremen, you know, the supervisors were from there. And so they couldn't, you know, so the other workers could turn up, but they couldn't get construction going. So all of a sudden, this imp- the importance of this, these communities played in society and then, of course, one thing that's at least interesting to see is that I get the sense that important sections of people in Western Sydney haven't forgot that. Like maybe it's been forgotten in the rest of Sydney yeah. or, or, or it's been, you know, oh, well, that was nice what they did for those two years. But you saw that, you know, and most graphically, uh, you know, as you talked, about in, in the, you talked about in the last episode in Fowler, you know, where what was the key dynamic there? Yeah, yes, there was Keneally, and yes, it was there was a popular local and independent, but it was just like and 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 Dai Lee, the, the now the MP, she recognises. She just said, "Look, people are just sick of being treated as second class citizens. It's not because everyone here in Western Sydney wanted COVID to let rip, and that's why we don't like Labor or anything like that. We we're just sick of just being treated like this. And like, if we're given an opportunity, we will do something different." And that's what gets me is like we had for two and a half years not the chance to build a utopian society or whatever, but we had chances to actually engage in discussions. But rather than engaging them, we shut them down. We shut them down by either saying, if you disagree with me, that means you want everyone's grandmothers to die. Or we shut them down by saying, look, they're good ideas, but getting rid of the virus comes first. So even if we implement the opposite of what you want, you have to accept that. Or we just shut them down by just... Not, not, not even having the entertaining discussion, not even being able to collect, because, you know, it became difficult, like, talking about social media. You know, it, it was amazing, like, the contrast between what people would say in public and then what other people would say in private, because a lot of people don't, you know, they've got better things in their life than to get involved in flame wars, you know, on, on social media. To me, it was, like, my, my, my outlet in some ways, because it was, like, like I said, it was, like, all I could do was go to work. That was it. And, you know, like, and I... In some ways, I felt I felt like privileged that I could do that. Like I, you know, like I said, I got to travel outside of Sydney. I had to get tested. I had to get my certificates. All these kind of things. But I, I got to do that. Mm. Um, and so you know, you know, people felt jealous when I told them that you know I was down in now or whatever. For so so for me, it was an outlet. But you know, just getting like other people who are writing back, going, you, you know what? Like yeah, we were just chatting like with some friends, you know, like who are not political, but actually got a bit politicized by this, and they were saying the same thing. They were saying like. This is rubbish to talk about police everyone equally. Like, we know what the police are. Like, surely we've learned anything over, you know, the last couple of years with all the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff like that, which, you know, again, is another issue we could talk about, about how, you know, how COVID was all important until, like, the Black Lives Matter protests came and all of a sudden that was okay for people to do. And, of course, this created all sorts of contradictions for people asking the questions, well, hang on, I can't go to work, but you can go to a protest, which one, what's your, okay, that might be important for you, absolutely, it's an important issue, but for others, someone else, it may not be.
But you couldn't entertain that discussion because now now you not only wanted everyone's grandmother to die, but now you also don't believe that black lives matters. And you've sold out to the right. <laughs> that's right, and you've sold out to the right, you know, when, of course, none of that was true. But that's just an easy way to not have to engage, not have to think about these things. And yeah. as I said, these were not, I like, you know, I can pull up the documents if I need to or whatever, but, like, I was one of the ones, my first initial reaction was very much, like, I was very pro-lockdown. Perhaps... The inbuilt in that was the idea that, like, we had to lock down for a reason. Like, I'm, I'm not sure I ever really believed the idea that we could totally eliminate a highly contagious virus. But, you know, I didn't rule that out. Like, that was my thinking began on that spectrum. Like, it's not like I started from the first day of the pandemic and said, oh, this is all a pandemic and I'm, you know, I'm skeptical of this. My, I, my starting point was very much an extreme pro lockdown position to the point where I just sort of said, oh, as I even said things like, look, the only way actually you can do a lockdown is by using the police. That's a reality. So we've got to acknowledge that and then start from that point and see how well, how do we do that properly. Because, you know, people would say, oh, we do a lockdown, but no police. It's like, well, that's not going to work. Like, how, what, a community vigilante group's going to implement this lockdown? Like, no one's going to listen to anything. Well, that's how it all boiled down, though, that on both sides of politics, everyone lurched back to the state to yeah. solve everything. And that's where the police stepped in. Yeah. But the problem is, is that, I mean, the, the state intervention to such an extent is problematic in itself. But if you want to focus on that, all of this happens on a scale. Like there isn't that liberal idea that everyone's going to be treated exactly fairly. You're going to have kids being constantly harassed to go home because they're hanging around the Macca's car park too much in the suburban fringes while you've still got people kind of sneaking out to do the bay run in the inner west or going out to the beach on the quiet and no one's going to do anything about that because of reasons, yeah. <laughs> you know, class reasons, geographic disparity reasons. So it all happens on a scale. And this was something that I was kind of, and this has probably been, that was this was the naive side of me at the start of this pandemic where I was just thinking, well, surely the left is going to notice this scalability of things and the disparities of things and, and these are going to be the challenges, but nah. So it just makes me think where to from here. I don't, I mean, the world has changed in many ways because of this. I mean, the positive things out of this is that um, it has led to some kind of recomposition of labour I think workers have had some sort of agency. I mean, for me, I can kind of pick and choose when I can go into the office and when I can stay at home. I know that other workers don't have that privilege, but at the same time, there have been some concessions in terms of PPE, um, some voice in terms of vaccination, a more concerted effort to come up with a more strategic vaccination program rather than just basically just keep putting it off because it's too hard and... I think that was part of Morrison's downfall, not because he was a right-wing prick, it's just because he was incompetent and he couldn't roll out shit. So all of that has manifested. And what was the other point I was going to make? Oh, yeah, um, the idea of essential work and precarious work, like the gig economy. Like people were really relying upon that stuff in order to make a wage. We're seeing recently in the last month or so that they're actually now starting to get some substantial labour rights. I don't think that it was any coincidence. It's because of the fact that they were forced to work during pandemic times where that sort of labour is, is form becoming increasingly formally recognised. So there has been some gains that have come out of this pandemic, but 
my intrigue here is what capital T, capital L, the left wants to do with it. And I, the frustration for me is that there still isn't that awareness. And I think it's for all the same reasons. And I don't want to try to wrap this episode up in a pessimistic note, but the lesson I've gotten out of this is that this pandemic seems to have been just a very accelerated experience of of my 40 years, which has also coincided with the neoliberal project. Um, That's what it's felt like for me. And once bitten, twice shy. Like, where to from here? Do we collapse back to social democracy, trying to solve things, or is there prospects, or is everyone still trying to map out... I don't know. Let's try and wrap it up from here. Like, what, what, where do people think things can go from here? Same old, same old, or is there prospects for change? Is there sparks? What do people think? I'm going to start with John first because he hasn't talked as much in this episode. And I think it's because we haven't been talking as much geeky shit as usual. I haven't mentioned Star Wars once. Yeah. Uh, but I've actually been really enjoying listening to the two of you. And I'm conscious as well. Like, you know, I, I was reading Fred's stuff on, on Facebook. And I was very conscious that, you know, I was living I was in I was living near the beach, but we were locked down at one stage. We were the one beachside suburb that was locked down. But we had very little police, I can tell you. <laughs> and I, you know, certainly had no issue with, you know, we were saying only in daylight hours, like I'd go for my walk at five o'clock in the morning or whatever. Like anyway. But yeah, look, I you know, I always come back to I think we saw the capitalist class can adjust to, to anything, the government can adjust to anything. You know, I'm I'm really interested in, for example, now we're seeing, you know, you were talking about workers being able to choose whether to come into the office or work from home. I'm starting to see those pressures happen where staff, so these are, you know, the pretty privileged people who got to work from home and now getting pushed into it's one or the other. You're coming in or the or the you're gonna lose your office. Like I'm starting to see those sort of narratives sort of happen. I think um for me there was the lockdown really exposed the inequalities we knew that were there and those inequalities were hidden behind that narrative about, well, the people in Western Sydney deserve this because they're breaking the rules. I think that's still unresolved. I'm really interested in the fact that we had these essential workers who were the heroes and now we're having labour gaps there because a lot of those people were international students and, and migrants. Um, I believe someone was telling me this that this is the first time that actually more people have left Australia than are coming in at the moment. And there's a lot of people, certainly in, in my academic circles, you know, people who come from different parts of the world who after this experience have just said, I was living here for, you know, three or four years, I'm going back to Canada or I'm going back to Norway because they've realised that those distances are real. So I'm interested and, you know, here at the moment where I'm working at the university, we obviously want international students to, to come back. Uh, they haven't come back yet. You know, I wonder if um, Australia has damaged its reputation uh, with the way it treated the rest of the world. I certainly am interested to see what's going to happen around these essential workers. And I'm aware too that we're only another mutation away from being in this whole mess again. And would it play out the same? You know, governments have said, oh, we won't lock down now, we won't lock down now, which I think is a lot to do with, well, we've got vaccines and they're effective and we don't need to. What if those vaccines stop being effective? Could we do this again? Could a political class try and lock us down again? Would, would it get the support? So, yeah, I'm probably a little bit pessimistic, but like with most things where people go, oh, this is going to change everything, and I find in the end it didn't really change much. Fred? I'm, funnily enough, like I'm not inherently pessimistic. 
I think certain seeds were sown. They might have, although they might have existed and, and they sprouted a bit or whatever during the pandemic. But I think there are some things there. The question, though, is can we fully grasp them, understand them, deal with them at the level that they're at and build from there? I think so. That's, so in some ways it's kind of different to what you were proposing about, or oh, what do we do with the left? I don't know what we do with the left except for maybe try to have the discussions about what are these seeds and that are sprouting. And I think what they are is awakening in working class communities of discontent, but which are not going to take the traditional roads that we think they will. They're not going to, for instance, inherently take the road of increased trade union membership because a lot of these workers not only are not in trade unions, they're in industries where trade unions don't exist. And, you know, and then so it's, you know, so how do you deal with that? And then it's funny, like, people try to, like, theorise that away. So then it becomes like, oh, well, in the CFMU, well, oh, the ones that were protesting, they're not real workers, they're, they're independent, they're basically little capitalists. And it's like, well, their, their work relations are no different from, like, the gig economy workers we were just talking about. They're all independent contractors, but you can't just pick and choose, oh, well, this one's a worker and the other one is a petty bourgeois capitalist. That's not, that's not how it works. We've got to, so we've got to start with the reality of what exists. And there are signs that there is discontent in those areas, and that's the, that should be the base of, of the left. So we've got, that's, I've, that's where I see it. So I'd be more pessimistic if, like, we saw nothing occur during the pandemic, but we saw things. We saw protests uh, in workplaces, you know, some of them organised by unions, other not because unions weren't there. You know, we saw some of the mutual aid stuff that, that happened. We saw the freedom movement, you know, and this is not a question about, like, oh, support it or, or not support it. The point was that it was, for a brief moment, an attempt by a section of the community to organise I don't believe that the idea that this was all just a concocted plan of a couple of far-right Nazis who somehow got together and magically got 10,000 people onto the streets. I know that for a fact that wasn't the case because I know some of the people that were involved in it to one one extent or another. They were not Nazis. They were not mobilising for far-right ideas. They weren't mobilising for ideas that I agreed with, but I understood what they were doing. And they were mobil- They were organising in the community. Okay, the, Flash in the pan, it, it went. But then so do many left campaigns as well. Like this, this is nothing new. But yeah, you know, these are all people that have some level of organising experience now. So there are all these kind of mixed up things that are happening that as as we started off talking about, not necessarily traditional left or right or left-wing people agree with them and right-wing people agree with them and it's all a bit mixed up. But it's there. And it's something that I think we just got to, like I said, try to try to grapple with, try to try to work out, try try to tease out, try try to show how this is still happening in, in, in everyday reality today. You know, so some of the things that I've been trying to delve in is to, yeah, what is the reality of the working class today? Because it's just it's so easy to just fall back on, oh, well, we'll get the trade unions to do that, or push a platform, or yeah, yeah. create demands, and then basically spend about five to ten years just pushing those demands. Yeah, but but the, the demands for for who or for what? You know, like because you know, like it's like you know, uh, you know, like it's again a big topic. Don't so uh, you know just briefly, but mm. you know, like the the change the rules things. You know, like the, this idea of the change the rules campaign. They had good elements to it, but also they're not. Part of me was thinking, well, how many workers are really thinking? If only the rules were different, I would be on strike. It's just not the reality of where a lot of working class people are. But that doesn't mean they don't have issues in the workplace. Doesn't mean they don't want to fight back. But it was just sort of three steps removed from where they are because they're not in, even in a union. 
And they're probably not in a workplace or in a employment status that a union would even mean much for them. As I said, the independent contractor or the, the subby who's got a business who employs his brother-in-law and one other person. You know, like, what is a union? How are, the, how are you going to unionise that way? The brother-in-law is going to unionise against him. It doesn't make any sense. But that doesn't mean these people can't be won to a, a progressive project, to, to a left project. You know, so try to grapple with that thinking about, well, what... If we are, even if we do want to come up with the perfect platform and demand, they've got to at least relate to the reality of the people that we're speaking to. Mm. Instead, most of the demands are demands that are from 30 years ago, just a, a, a different world from the one we live in now, a different world in terms of employment status. You know, the reality that we have now have a situation where the biggest group of workers are neither covered by collective bargaining agreements or by the award. They're on some level of individual contract, but even within that, you have a big gap. So you have professionals who have used this to push up their prices, you know, because a lot of professionals are leaving the country, you know, because they don't know or don't want to be stuck here, you know, <laughs> they want to be able to travel the world, things like that. But on the lower level, people are getting their wages really, really pushed down. So these, these things are happening. We're seeing inequality doesn't just exist in the abstract. It doesn't just exi- exist between the rich and the poor, but it exists between working class people themselves. Mm. And that becomes a reality. That becomes a, a lived reality of working people who... Some see that as, well, I've got to maintain my position within that. You know, so how do we cut a, how do we cut across that? So all of these things are there, but I, I think the pandemic sort of brought them out. They, so and those discussions happened, and then we had flash in the pan things. Uh, we had the, the Fowler election, you know, which you know, um, I, you know, I don't agree with the way Keneally put it when she said, you know, this is this was a payback for COVID uh, because the implication there was that everyone in Fowler just hated, was anti-lockdown. I think they were anti the way the lockdown was implemented. Now, I think that's a much better way to, to, to sort of understand it, whilst many of them were very concerned about COVID, but they still had to go to work. So their life was even worse than mine because their life was work, shop online and helicopters at night, you know, and probably having to homeschool two or three kids in an apartment with two rooms and only one computer. Yeah. You know? yeah, oh, well, yeah the, the unrecognised labour where you had to, and also the stuff where you had to do more than two things at once and no one was seeing that and that was a sense of invisibility. Sorry, John. I was going to say, we haven't even got, we didn't even get to that, did we, to talk about people having to, to, to school their kids and their kids being at home and, and yeah, what, what that would have been like. Um, yeah, yeah. That, to me, that was that was, that, that was, I think that was for me. The school and the kids stuff was really the turning point for me, really, because that that was where I realised the disconnect between the reality that kids and parents were facing, and then, as you say, like the platform on demand. So the big thing was like closed schools, you know, to to end COVID. It's like, well, okay, you can do this for a certain amount of time, but you do this for enough time, this is going to have generational impacts. Like this is going to, you know, when kids lose a year, you only have, what, 12 years of school? Mm. You lose one of them. That's like 10%. Yeah, that's, going to have, that's going to have ramifications for years to come. Mm. But this was like sort of seen as, oh, well, this is the, the price that needs to be paid. It's like, well, no, it doesn't have to be paid because we know for a fact that kids are not the ones dying <laughs> from COVID. Well, there is, there is an element of privilege that, that comes with being able to say such things because there is a cost. With your example, Fred, the, on a more epistemological basis, the idea of long COVID, which still hasn't been absolutely scientifically examined, but I suspect there's going to be stuff that's going to come up in the years ahead. There's psychological trauma, and uh, I can wax lyrical through my own personal experience where I've had to take time off work to try and work through all of this stuff. There's a cost, 
But I, I think maybe that's where we can kind of wrap things up, where I think if there is a positive to come out of this pandemic, maybe it is a start to actually start identifying this stuff that everyday life and people struggles and all of that and trying to see exactly what that looks like and actually naming it. And I mean, in many ways, this is why I've, I, I do this podcast project because it helps me get out and away from those safe lefty conversations where you can behave by just talking like about demand friendly conversations but at the end of the day you're you're finding yourself being in this microcosm or basically ghetto Mm -hmm. you know that's where i like to to put things at this point if there's not going to be any transformational change that happens during this pandemic at least let's start mapping it out you know and start aiming it talking about it that's that's my sentiments if that's how we can end it and unless john you've got some way of crowbarring some pop culture references in there no you don't nope i, nope, I was nope. just gonna go how, how many star wars episodes star wars movies did you watch in lockdown well i actually um i saw thor 4 last night oh okay yeah yeah, it's pretty underwhelming. I think that's where we're going to have to have a bit of a chat in a future episode, John, because it's like I've now got this um, this hot take now where the, the streaming services are actually now superseding the movies in terms of quality. Well, I still haven't returned to a cinema post-lockdown. It still hasn't happened. This is probably the movie that's going to get me in there. Yeah? Probably. Uh, I don't know. Just don't uh, get your expectations up. They're already up. Can't help it. But, but Fred, are you a Ted Lasso fan? Uh, I, I've heard of the show. No, I haven't, I haven't watched it, but it's on one of those streaming platforms, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not that easy to sort of... Yeah, for some. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anyone who has the passwords they can share with me. No, 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 no. I, 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 I haven't watched it, so I, I, I yeah, really I've can't say much about it. Kind of shared my, uh, my pirate nightlife um, in for previous episodes, but uh, yeah, with at the risk of spoiling things for that movie, it's, uh, there was uh, something that was quite uh, pleasing for me, being a Ted Lasso fan, that, uh, that popped up in that movie. Do 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 no, is that no? Alien, whatever. Can we rewind that part? Yeah. yeah. Can we? Re- you'll cut that. I'll leave it at that. But anyway, uh, at the risk of actually branching out into um, another pop culture spiral, I think I'm I'm going to do the safe thing and and call it there. But that's it, folks. That was the first episode of Thorn in Your Side where we did a panel. Seemed to go all right. I think we'll we'll do more panely stuff next time. Sound all right with you guys? Sounds good. Yeah, yeah, no, it sounded good, and, and thanks for the invitation. It was a very enjoyable discussion. You're welcome, Fred. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully we might have to have another conversation like this where it's like, oh, here's another pandemic wave, and this is the same shit that's happened again. Let's hope we're not doing that again. But we'll, we'll find an excuse to have you back, Fred. Sounds hopefully good. not like that, though. Sounds good. All right, thanks, everyone. Catch you later. Stay safe, and, um, yeah, Who do you sing for? We sing for Wanderers. Thank you very much. Ah!